Hey, all seven of you out there, as you guys know, we've had a great sponsorship with Hall Tactical, an ETF that uses high-frequency trading principles to give that value to retail investors. And as the sponsorship draws to a close, we wanted to re-air the interview we did with founder of Hall Tactical, blackjack legend Blair Hall. And so hopefully you guys can listen to this in its entirety without Rufus and I's banter back and forth distracting you. So with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a tout with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is we now welcome in Blair Hull to the Bet the Process podcast. Blair, your story to me is very personal. Um, having worked on the Chicago Board of Options Exchange as CBOE as a 21-year-old for O'Connor and Associates right out of MIT, um, also having sort of tracked as a card counter in those days, I would hear stories. There were, there were really two big other firms on the CBOE at that time. One was Blair Hall Trading and the other was uh, Susquehanna. We know we've actually had Jeffrey Yaz on this podcast before. Um, and and now I feel like we've really, you know, completed the triumvirate by having, having you on. So uh, thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit about who Blair Hall is and what you were doing back in those days on the CBOE. Uh, well, it's good to be here, Jeff. Um, first about O'Connor and Associates, they were the premier firm uh, at the at the CBOE and in the options industry. Uh, it was started by a gentleman by the name of Mike Greenbaum. And uh, then he hired and developed uh, the best talent. And their hiring process was uh, uh, amazing. And I'm sure that's why why they chose you. Um, but it was it was a firm that I admired a great deal. Yeah, they were, they were, it was fun. It was, it definitely felt, I felt victorious that I was able to get a job there because I knew it was uh, challenging or had heard it was challenging, but they'd ask very basic probability questions. I remember something as simple as like, give me the, uh, the expected value of, uh, you know, the sum of a, of a, of a six-sided die, but then how much money would you pay to play that game if I gave you, I mean, it was like, as a 21 year old, just thinking through those things was challenging. So what 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 got you into trading in the first place and and into that world? Well, it's as as you know, it really started with blackjack. It started with card counting. I was I was with the, with a team um, after I had developed a strategy. Well, I I really used Ed Thorpe's strategy uh, from about 1972 to 74, and um, I used a simple point count. Um, my brother-in-law got me involved in it by saying that he paid for his vacations at Lake Tahoe every time he went up. And I said, that's ridiculous. If, if, if it's really, if there's an opportunity there that you'd really, you'd use it big time and you wouldn't be an accountant. You wouldn't have your full-time job. And so I took it quite seriously. And I was fortunate enough to meet Frank Schiapani and get involved in the team that I think is recognized as the first team that really 
beat uh, Las Vegas big in the seventies. Two decades before, I guess a decade and a half before you were you were involved. Well, you guys were the ones that broke all the ground for us to you know have this flashy movie made about us. Um, do you consider yourself to be an advantage player, and and sort of how do how do you define advantage player? Well, you talked about uh, expected values, calculating expected values, weighting, taking the probabilities times the outcomes, and uh, summing those up to get the expected values. So, advantage players certainly try to get a positive expected value, but uh, the key, the key that makes a, a successful advantage player is whether he can figure out how much to wager each time to optimally grow his, his bankroll. And I think that's, uh, that's really separates the men from the boys is how you make, how you decide what to, what to wage, how much to, of your bankroll to wager. When you think about that sort of idea. So, so one is, is, and this is very relevant to our podcast, finding a way to get an edge. And the other way is figuring out how much money, not only figuring out how much money to bet on that edge, but also being able to get that money down. Are these concepts that you've used throughout your um, your career? Well, it's uh, extremely critical in the financial markets to have access and uh, execution is a key, key part of uh, getting positions on in the financial markets. So unless you have a, a reasonable way to transact, you're not going to be, you're not going to be successful. Um, it's certainly part of it. So what were some of the lessons that you learned from Blackjack that you took with you to the financial world? Interesting. Um, well, the first thing uh, was discipline. Um, you had to be consistent. You had to uh, be able to certainly count the deck down and have a set strategy with a count of, with a true count of, plus four, how much do I wager? And I go right to that wager. So it was certainly, uh, discipline was one of the keys. Um, dealing with your emotions as you go through what is eventually gonna be big losses. You're gonna, if you have a bankroll of $100,000, you're gonna lose half of that. If you, if you position it right, Lots of times you're going to go out, you're going to go through half that bankroll, and then you're going to say, well, what do I do now? And you're going to have to decrease your bets uh, because you can't risk the entire run. And you have to, so you're going to have to stick to uh, cutting your bets back when you're, when you're losing. Uh, that was the second thing I learned. And the third thing I learned, which was we were involved, we were involved in a team. And so it depended upon everybody's, diligence their skill level which of course was tested so i i think those are the uh, those those are the three things discipline the emotions of dealing with big losses and then and then working with a team i mean nothing is accomplished by individuals significant accomplishments are are accomplished by teams not by individuals we got to work together so you mentioned uh, the the whole concept of you know when you were losing and in blackjack you have this sort of ability to really understand this like closed system versus this open system right where it's really easy to have conviction when you're losing in blackjack um, when you've lost half of your bankroll and to continue doing it how do you have that same conviction in something like finance? Well, finance it's. Um... 
it's difficult if you have, it really comes down to the number of wagers you make. And uh, there's a book by Granola and Khan that talks about um, the, having the, your advantage times the square root of the number of wagers you make uh, really gives you your expected information ratio or, or your sharp ratio. It's getting, you have to be in a game where you can make a lot of wagers to, to have the confidence that you will get into the long run. And, and, and that, that's, that's the problem with market timing. And that's why whole tactical is, is taking on a difficult task because we only get one wager a day. And Blackjack, he got 800 wagers. I was assuming 100 hands an hour for eight hours a day. Um, so you're, you're forced in, you want to get as many wagers as you can to get into the long run. So in blackjack, the long run, I mean, as Jeff said, it's a closed system. So you, the rules are, are established. You, you know what your edge is, but markets are always changing. And so you talk about the long run in financial markets, but once you sort of have established that, the market could be entirely different. How are you able to handle that and, and still be confident in your edges? You're right. These, these advantages don't stay forever. Uh, just as in blackjack, even though it was a closed system, that system stayed uh, with significant advantages into the 80s and 90s when we played. And there were some, there were advantages into the 2000s, but it, it had a life of about 50 years. I mean, ideas and finance have lives too. And certain, certain ones stay longer than others. But there is a, there's a lot of discussion in the academic world that as soon as something's published, it just doesn't work in the future. Well, that happens with some, with some anomalies and not with others. If there's a tremendous, if there's a force and a need for it to create an anomaly, then there will, then it will stay for longer. Um, in the case of um, one of the advantages we're using is that uh, in the market, financial markets, people tend to sell calls to produce income. They do buy rights on individual names and sometimes on indexes. At the same time, they need to buy puts in the indexes. That's an anomaly that will stay around for a while. It's not going to go away until that demand, excess demand, uh, goes away. So there's certain there's certain things that can be um, are more likely to be here for a longer run. So, so can I say it very simply that those those puts are always what downside puts are always overpriced in indexes. That's true. Would you be able to know when they were not? You have a pricing model that would be able to capture that. Uh, there's something called the implied correlation, which says how does the volatility in the index compare to the volatility in the single names, and uh, if and that that goes up and down over time and Implied correlation does mean revert. So you can tell whether the difference between the volatility. But well, first, there always is a variance risk premium. That says that options are generally overvalued. People don't like to be short call options on things that can go to infinity, especially the risk managers at firms like Robinhood or interactive brokers. There is extreme capital requirements to hold short options. So there are fewer people that can sell those. And as a result, they tend to be, all options tend to be overpriced. Others, some are more overpriced than others. Hmm. 
So in your career as an options trader, would you say, obviously, then you sold more options than you bought? Slightly. That's that's a slight. That's that's true. That's correct. That's correct. I would tend to be short, uh, generally short. Period. But this does swing back and forth too. the premium on individual names versus the premium on indexes. Um, and they may be expensive at one time and not quite as expensive as others. Let's take a step back to Blair Hall Trading, which was the firm that you created, um, you know, that, that I mentioned in Chicago and uh, whatnot. You eventually sold that firm to Goldman Sachs for a lot of money. Um, congratulations on that. But what do you think the strength of Blair Hall Trading was? What what made you guys successful? We copied O'Connor and Associates. To some extent, we did. Um, we were uh, we were complete. We wanted to completely automate the process. We were uh, probably a little more disciplined about that, trying to put things in the um, specific rules. And we had as many technology employees as we had in the trading area. So I, th I think the teamwork, the, the teamwork was certainly important. We tended to trade, it was one big portfolio versus a lot of siloed individuals. So we tended to have it all in one portfolio. We tended to manage the risk of the entire portfolio. Was there any technology that you guys employed or built that allowed you guys to unlock value beyond? So like, I mean, obviously you had good analytics and you had a good team. Uh, were there other other pieces of technology that unlocked for you? Along with uh, Tom Petterby, we were the first to have handheld devices where we could input the trades to our central portfolio. That was certainly a key in the early early days. We were in we were in Germany soon. Of course, the United States tends to be behind the rest of the world, and they were the first to decide the Deutsche Termes Bureau in in Germany and the stock exchange, and then onto the options decided that it was going to be an automated world, and the United States did not try to fight as long as they could to keep an open optimized system. And we were, we tended to embrace automation. And as a result, I was actually on the on the on the um, the board of the Chicago Board of Options Exchange that time. And I think if you had taken a vote of the members of the exchange, I would have clearly been the least popular member of that board of directors because I I said that we had to embrace automation, and uh, that was not a popular stance to take at that time there is an interesting parallel here with with sports betting where the analytics is is important but the automation and the ability you know to get and move quickly before others move is is an important part of success i mean they there's a lot of talk about these idea of like top-down betters that are using you know reading the market and moving quickly to find an edge um it's very interesting. The other parallel that that Rufus brought up, and I, I think it's interesting to think about, is when we worry about sort of non-stationarity and and models that we create. The idea that these these persistent edges in derivative markets like options, they're similar to sometimes what we see in sports betting, where there's derivative markets, say prop bets off of a total score that always tend to be mispriced for, for different reasons. So some of those edges tend to stay longer because they're sort of off of derivative markets. I think that was what 
um, Rufus was getting to, which which is which is kind of interesting. Also, I think the one big difference between financial markets and sports betting markets is that in general, in financial markets, you're never observing the true value of the asset. It's always a function of sentiment as well. However, if you're pricing a derivative, I, I feel like that's not necessarily the case anymore because you can see how these two should function together. That's derivatives versus the underlying you're saying. And so you'll be basically, if there is any sort of change in things, you will be able to sort of, you can price one relative to the other rather than just being able to sort of say, oh, this is the true value of this asset versus, and and maybe at this, all assets are overpriced or something like that. So everything looks overvalued. <laughs> if you go back to um, when you sold Blair Hall trading into Goldman Sachs, one of the things I, I heard you mention or was talked a little bit about is sort of the idea that, um, they wanted to buy you because they wanted to change the culture of Goldman Sachs a bit and bring you guys in. And that was changing the culture. Can you explain a little bit about that? Cause I, I find that incredibly interesting in a world where we know that most M and a events are failures for the acquiring company. This obviously wasn't a failure. What, what were some of the, you know, like, what do you mean by that culture thing? And then what do you think some of the things they did that made that um, acquisition successful were? Well, um, Hank Paulson, the CEO at the time, uh, did make the statement to me that I, he considered it a DNA transfer. The way in which we approached the March markets, he wanted to change Goldman's culture to be more like ours. And so they did in the first few months, well, I'd say in the first year, we had 250 employees. They hired 200 employees the next the next two years, and then expanded that operation uh, around the world. Um, we had a joint venture in Tokyo, and we didn't have direct access to the markets. They immediately went in, ended that joint rent venture, and and um, got direct access. So it was a change of thinking, as much as it was just acquiring the assets of the firm. So talking a little bit, let's move on to Hull Tactical. Um, after all that success that you had, what motivated you to start Hull Tactical? And tell us a little bit about what, what Hull Tactical is. Well, after, after the sale in 2000, I was sort of fat, dumb, and happy. And uh, until 2008 came along, and there was this um, amazing this crash that occurred. And I said, well, wait, there must be some way to get ahead of these things. And so I did. I went, to, I went back to academia and tried to figure out where uh, what had been done to try to predict the, what's called the equity risk premium is how much you get paid to own equities versus treasury bills. That's uh, so everybody's trying to predict the equity risk premium. And, and I went through all the literature and, and then we did develop a model, which through a walk forward simulation, where we didn't look ahead, trying to determine the strategy would be successful. Um, and unfortunately it's not a, it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, you only have a few observations. There are only a few bottoms and a few tops. You know, if we think about um, the various 2000, uh, 2000 was a top, 2008 was a top. Um, you had a couple bottoms in there. So in modern times where we have a lot of data, we don't have many tops and bottoms. So we're really, we're, we're really dealing with a small sample. Um, is the issue. 
we felt we had an edge in in predicting the direction of the market, and we still do with the original model that we we put together. And that's that was published in a journal of portfolio management, I believe, pretty good journal. And uh, we have since that time continued to expand those models, specifically going into using different kinds of data, and also looking at shorter term horizons, we now have a one day model that probably has half the weight. We have four models that are in operation. We have six models, two get zero weights because we don't feel that they are going to be predicted in the future. Four of those do get weights and the two biggest ones are the, the original model and then the, the, uh, the one day model that uses sentiment right at the close to determine what, whether we think the probability whether the market's going up or down in the state. How much art is there versus science when you sort of determine how much weight to put on these models? I know the models themselves are very scientific, but um, in terms of the ensembling. No, the ensembling is, does require some judgment. And um, we um, sort of try to balance long-term effects and short-term effects in, in, in that Means try to maintain our longer term position at the same time taking advantage of some of the shorter term. So it does have some judgment, and that's reviewed, I think, every six months or so. We, we, we review those. All of the models are updated every month. Now, one of the one of the models uses inception from date, and it has about 20, 20 years of data. Another one uses a 12, a 12 year rolling window. So we take out a month of data and we put it in another month every month, and then we rerun, we redo the model. So some of the some of the coefficients may not, some of the variables may lose their significance over time, and as a result, they don't go into the new forecast. So it's sort of a dynamic process that operates, and um, so it's the ensembling is somewhat a subjective. The execution every day is 100% automated. Nobody, nobody takes a second guess on any one day. How much do you worry uh, about overfitting without knowing how you actually are determining what goes into the model? Um, if obviously the, the more sort of big data, the more machine learning is involved, I think the more risk of, uh, of overfitting. Uh, Rufus, I think you're on the key issue there uh, because we worry about overfitting a great deal. In fact, the new model, which came in three years ago, it's been it's it's been an, it's been operational for more than three years, um, is um, an elastic net. Elastic net combines two techniques called ridge and lasso, and in the simplest terms, ridge regression says when you wait, you take a sample and you run a regression. Let's say we're trying to look at height and weight or something to try to predict um, how much somebody weighs based upon how tall they are. Uh, you'll find that you fit that data specifically for that data set. But on the other hand, if you use any new set, you probably want to weight that variable a little lower than you would before. So you get the shrinkage, the coefficients shrink when you do something you call cross-validation and you get a better prediction out of sample than you would in sample. So uh, we, we worry about overfitting uh, a great deal. 
Well, it's, it's a Bayesian method. And so I, I, I love hearing that. How do you end up adjusting for it then? Or how do you end up continuing to like police yourself on it? Well, every month the, the model runs using this technique that shrinks the coefficients down to what would be what would be the best estimates out of sample. So um, we're, we don't have to worry about that. The weighting of these models doesn't change a great deal when we do change the weights. So it's a pretty stable system with the exception of some new potential variables coming in. We try to always, um, we're always on the lookout for the new indicator that will give us a little boost in the, in the predictive power. Do you ever have a new vari a variable you see that that looks like it has a very, very practically and statistically significant impact, but you just can't under seem to understand why it would have any power? And if so, what do you typically do with something like that? I mean, it, I, to give you an example, in like college football, there was a 12-year period. I haven't updated this in many years, but where, where schools starting with the letter O would cover the spread in 57% of of their games across a sample size of like 800 something games, which is wildly significant. But again, I wouldn't expect that to continue. No, if there's no, if there's no logical, uh, understandable reason to have the indicator in there, even though it's correlation is 0.99, we don't put it in. Unless there's some, it, it's not the, no, we do, we, we absolutely are, I look for a causal relationship. Got to be some reason. This, this when you look at all these different indicators or the data that you're using, obviously a lot of it is is historical market data. What are some of the other data sources that you're using or that you found significant? Here, a, a couple of them are, um, we do use uh, a couple different kinds of sentiment. One sentiment from Market Psych, a firm that takes a look at uh, the sentiment. It reads all the, it reads news and social media. And it puts various characteristics on them, such as joy or fear or um, uh, optimism. It, 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 they take these, and so we do use we do use that data. We also use Ned Davis Research, is a firm that's been around an awful long time, and they have some proprietary indicators. They have a a sentiment survey that consists of about. 10 different sentiment surveys. And we get a, uh, that's one of the variables we get from them. We also get, um, we also look at the volume in some of the speculative instruments, such as the leveraged ETFs. There's a long leveraged ETF and a short leveraged ETF in the market. Um, and we look at the volume of each of those relative to each other to see whether the market is um, overbought or oversold. There's too much sentiment that's going one way or another. And we tend to fade that if they're going after, if the public is going after the leveraged long ETF, uh, that's going to reduce our signal. We're not going to be as as bullish at that time as we would be otherwise. Can I ask how much financial markets um, and some of these effects you, you you might find are 
uh, driven by a few big players. So the parallel in the sports betting world is that in, in a few different, actually, I would say in, in most uh, individual sports betting markets, there are a few big players that uh, are, are sort of having a big impact on the market. And so you could say, oh, the market does this at noontime because this one group did that at noon this year. And then they switch over the next year, they're betting at 4 p.m. And it could completely throw things off. So is there, there there's a little bit of a fragility in the system is what I'm getting at. Uh, does that exist in the financial markets? To uh, I'm Obviously not to the same extent, but is that something you you worry about when building these models? As to who is who are the major players that are affecting the marketplace? Well, That's are there may are there a few players that in essence are creating some of these effects that you observe by their behaviors? If you're talking about the aggregate U.S. stock market, no, I don't believe there are any there there aren't a handful of players that are, are manipulating what's happening. No, it's the sentiment of the whole crowd. It's a, it's a gigantic crowd that includes retail, um, includes hedge funds are not taking, they're not doing market timing. Um, the banks certainly are taking a position relative to their, uh, they're trying to adjust their portfolio, but they're all, uh, there are too many players here. It's not, it's not like a small game. There are 5,000 individual equities these markets are so connected globally. When we think about uh, the Nikkei and, and then as in Asia, and then as the market moves into, into Europe, uh, this is a global, the S&P 500 is a global index, really. I've, I've heard, um, and, and I'm not an expert in this, obviously, in the slightest, but that uh, one concern over ETFs growing so large and is a fraction of the size of the market is the impact they could actually have when they're when they're sort of rebalancing and stuff like that. Um, is does that is that something that I mean, I know that's not the same exact thing, but it, it, um, do you have any sort of comment on that? Yeah, in certain specific areas, such as they had the uh, leveraged volatility ETFs that followed the VIX. So when you have a smaller number of players and you have to create ETFs are created. And so those are uh, those are special situations that one does have to worry about, but not the aggregate market. And you don't and you don't have to worry about that impacting your models in any way or showing that it could give you some opportunity actually. Well, you have to realize that exchange traded funds and publicly accessed funds, which Hull Tactical is, HTUS, that symbol is a publicly accessed phone. You're limited in what you can do and what instruments you can play in. We just got approved to trade options about six weeks ago. And so it's, uh, it's much more difficult as a public fund um, to do these, uh, these strange kinds of things. So we're, we're under a, a great deal of regulation. On the on the options piece, I assume that essentially now you feel like your edge is going to be magnified because you have sort of this underlying edge on timing, and then you have this options uh, bias that you understand well that will give you another edge. Uh, is that is that fairly accurate? Yes, that's correct. Um, and we did publish a paper us on the risk reversal um, that uh, explains this in in detail. Some of our long position, typically we are long the market. We try to be 
on average have the same, no more volatility than the S&P 500. So on average, we're, no, we're, we're not leveraged. And so we want to replace some of our long position with a risk reversal that is long, an out of the money call and short out of the money put. And we believe, according to our research, that we will add a number of, we will add somewhere between three and 5% to our return by doing that. And so that's, that's what we're really, we're hoping to be on average long calls and short puts as part of our equity position. We still bury that op that position according to our market timing, but the basic position is held somewhat more with long call short put than it than it was what we didn't have any options before six weeks ago. Would you consider yourself a contrarian? And then, if so, is that a key to beating the market? I think it is. I think that the the crowd is on average on average wrong, and. Um, I think as a as a general philosophy, I think the opportunities occur by being contrarian. That one is a tough one, and we can just talk quickly about this because we we actually talk a lot about in sports betting how much to value what the market is saying. Like in other words, if your models differ from the market by say ten percent, you know, is your model directionally correct but wrong and missing a bunch of stuff? And like if you keep you know, the idea of balancing what the, the the concept of the wisdom of the crowds with being contrarian and different, like how how do you think about that? Hmm. Or do you just think the crowd's not that wise? Well, certainly the the crowd at extremes is is wrong. We we know that. We know that. There there are some situations such as you get into the GameStop and the AMC things where there was a crowd. The crowd, when the crowd begins to attack something, you don't want to be a contrarian at that point in time. In fact, there is some, we're in trying to put this these option strategies into our stock position. We're now trying to predict the hedged return on options. So we're really trying to predict the values of options. And we found that if, uh, I was talking a little bit about market site, that if volume starts to increase on Twitter and it's above its moving averages, you probably don't want to be selling options at that point. You want that excitement to, to peak and then to die down and then you can sell options. So there is a little bit of a, we, we, we do think there's some timing in, in being a contrarian. Um, you can't, at the beginning of a trend, you want to go with it, but after it's been there a while and everybody's if everybody's excited and everybody knows about it, it's time to it's time to go the opposite way. Rufus, you got one last question for Blair? I do. Do you have any sort of any advice for for retail investors like like Jeff or myself in terms of uh, investing? What's what's the what's the biggest mistake retail investors make? Well, specifically for options. I would say try to get an account where you can sell naked options. There is money in selling naked options at certain times. So even though it may seem like a risky, a risky thing to do, uh, it is worth getting a marginal account where you can't sell options. 
Ooh, and can I follow up and say, what if you had, if you had we're starting over with, let's say you had a bankroll of a hundred thousand or something. So you have, you, you're not constrained by size, uh, by market size. What would be your approach to try to, uh, to make your fortune? And that can be financial markets or other markets. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things um, we didn't talk about a little bit of where the source of the ideas, the financial ideas are. And I think it's Google Scholar. Uh, I think that a lot of things are published that aren't implemented and that people don't have a, 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 a good sense of. And if you have some thought or some idea, get used to using Google Scholars. Get a good education as, as you have and uh, and lean on the academic world because uh, people publish things that uh, probably shouldn't be published, uh, but it gives you a true sense of, of uh, where the edge is. I love that. Google Scholar. Yeah, I honestly, so before I moved to Las Vegas, I did a, a summer working doing a literature review on academic literature and sports betting, betting and how it pertains to financial markets for a, a professor at Yale. And, and that like really informed me, not only of, I, I felt like I understood the market better, but also in the biases, but also learned a lot of techniques and stuff that were really ended up being useful. So I've just picked up a new technique. If there's some article that you're really excited about, what in Google Scholar will give you this cited by how many people, who is it cited by? If you can, if there are people that have cited it, then you go to those articles and you end your your search by finding an article that hasn't been cited by anybody. And if you can get there, then you, so there's an end to this, you know, you can get lost in Google Scholar, but it's fun to get to the end of, this is the last article that was published on this site. But of course, you wait a week and there's another one there. Well, Blair, thank you so much for joining us. It's fascinating to hear about what you're up to. And obviously we are excited to continue to look in what Hull Tactical is doing and um, the different changes and innovations that you're making in that as you go along. So I'd I'd like to continue this conversation because I want to talk about how the MIT team came, um, uh, how you came across the team play and how you implemented some of our techniques in what you did. Well, I think, you know, team play was something that uh, the team had tried, I think, pretty early on and and had moved more towards, um, you know, cuts and advanced games like that and less around simple call-ins. And by team play, I assume you mean you mean call-ins and big player type right. stuff, right? right. And, and essentially, you know, obviously there was Ken Houston's book, which I know you were a part of that team. Um, that was very formative in the idea of using Collins. And what Blair's uh, referring to is is when you play as it's a team of five, where there's one person who's betting the real money, and the other four are spread out around the casino, either playing or just watching. If they're playing, they're probably betting table minimum, and um, if they're watching, they're just standing like anyone else, and they will signal to a big player who will come in, and uh, they'll pass the count off to them with a code word or some sort of a signal. Um, and then the big player will sit down and bet all the money. And so casinos at that time, so this is in the mid nineties had kind of forgotten about Collins and they were sort of, you know, uh, surprised that this random person would jump into a shoe and bet big money 
Because how would they know what the count was if they weren't near the table? It just seemed like someone who was very compulsive and liked to jump around. Um, And I I think we just, you know, you just, it's like experimentation. You do things when they start working, you just keep doing them and doing them and doing them until that, until that hole closes. So um, it became very, Collins became very popular for us in sort of that mid nineties timeframe. And I think a lot of people started doing them and then that, that closed pretty quickly because, you know, places like Atlantic City were very big on no meat shoe entry almost always, right? They they were very quick to do that because they could change the rules. Now, Las Vegas, they cannot change the rules, but they, you know, generally they don't do that. And they, instead they just kick people out. So it's a different, different thing. You know, Atlantic City at that time had just closed a lot of the holes, you know, bad cut card and bad rules and no mid shoe entry and that kind of thing. But But Vegas still had some very playable places for a while. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Blair. Uh, Again, uh, we'll look forward to uh, hearing more about Hall Tactical in the upcoming episodes. Thank you. This episode of Bet the Process is brought to you by Hull Tactical. The hosts of this podcast are not investors with HTAA and were not directly compensated for their views. However, HTAA sponsored this podcast. The hosts and sponsors share conflict of interest because the sponsor paid a one-time cash compensation for the content of the podcast and the hosts may be incentivized to endorse or promote HTAA's investment management services.